this morning on a, a subject I don't know if I've ever spoke on it or not. I might have. Um, you know, when you get about uh, 18 years of preaching under your belt, you kind of forget all the ones that you preached. And did you know that next Sunday we'll, I'll be starting my 18th year as senior pastor at Faith Christian Fellowship? How about that? I survived the first 17 so far. Amen. Amen. Of course. Uh, yeah. Come on, Ryan. You're holding me up, brother. All right. So, uh, anyway, I'm just glad to be a part of the church and do what I can. But I want to speak on the bread of life this morning. And it's all in John, the sixth chapter. Now, that's a big chapter. There's a lot of verses to John the 16th or the 6th chapter and I'm not going to read it all. Uh, I uh, just don't think that, that would be a good use of our time this morning but if you'll turn to John the 6th chapter we'll pick up and study there about the bread of life. Father we come to you in Jesus name this morning thankful for how good a God you are. We ask that you would just help us today to be what we should be for you. We ask, Lord, that you would anoint the word as it goes forth, that, Lord, if I say it wrong, you can correct it before they hear it. And, Father, if, if they don't hear it right, you can correct them before it reaches their heart. So move, Lord, in the service in a mighty way that this worship would be a glory and a praise to you. We appreciate everyone that's made their way out to the house of God. They didn't come to waste their time. They came to hear from you. And, Father, we ask that you just use us to your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now usually when I announce that, then I read a text. That's the way kind of I have a format of doing things. And then I take that text and I tear it apart and bring out the points of the lesson from that text and, and uh, go on to maybe build, if you would, some kind of message or some kind of a, uh, understanding that God would have us to get from his word and then I can show you what God showed me in the study and all the research I've done over the last, uh, well, 47 plus years. So um, we've learned a lot about the scriptures and, and we're just here to help everybody get a better understanding. But to teach the lesson that Jesus gave his disciples and the multitude here in John the sixth chapter uh, would take a lot of time to read because um, it would take in about 71 verses. And if I read 71 verses, by the time I get to 30 or 40, I'll be asleep. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deviate from that to keep from uh, boring you to death for the next hour or so. I'm just going to tell you the lesson and kind of point to the scriptures that are important parts as we come down through it. It's kind of what Brother Steve did in Sunday school today. What did he call that? Capsizing or something. What was the word you used? Capsulating. Is that a word you used this morning? Okay, well that's what I plan on capsulating. I never heard that, but he used it. Amen. I wish I was as smart as him. Amen. Alright. The way it starts out here is I thought I already preached too much and ran her off. <laughs> All right. It starts out here that Jesus is in Galilee. Now, if you know the Old Testament 
geography, so to speak. What we call Israel today would be in the southern portion of it. And from the northern portion of, of what we would call all of Judea or Israel and all that today, it was in two parts at this particular time. And in the middle was a little sliver called Samaria. But Jesus grew up as a young boy. We know that from Bible teaching, that he grew up in a city called Nazareth. That's in Galilee. That's in the northern portion. It's basically, Galilee is known for its sea up there called the Sea of Galilee. Around the Sea of Galilee, that is an important port for them to make a living on. Now, a lot of the people that Jesus, if you would, rubbed shoulders with in his day and time were fishermen. The first four disciples he called were fishermen. They made their living on the Sea of Galilee. So that's where this takes place. And it says that he's in a town or going to a town called Tiberias. Tiberias also takes, if you would, the name Tiberias is added the word sea. It's still the Sea of Galilee. Okay, sometimes it's called the Sea of Tiberias because it's that portion on the eastern side, or well, it's the western side, it's east for us, but west side of the Sea of Galilee. There's also a city in the north called Capernaum, right on the, the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of times Capernaum wants to take credit for the Sea of Galilee. Now, one thing we have to understand is they didn't have a Kroger's to go to to get their groceries. And people like to have food, right? Well, basically, they made their own bread, but it's good to have something to go with it. So some fish would be nice. And from the Sea of Galilee, they were very successful in fishing and then going to what you might just say a fish market or a place to sell those fish to the people that lived around the Galilean ports of Galilee. So here we have Jesus in his ministry, in chapter 6, he has already performed a whole slew, a lot, of miracles. It says here that after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, same thing, I'll explain that, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. So why were they following Jesus? Because he was so good looking? No. Because he sang so well? I doubt it. Because he had such a magnetic personality? Probably not. Especially if he was a Pharisee. He was, you would think he had a very coarse personality towards them. But it was not his fault. It was theirs. They didn't understand that. But here they followed him, it says, because of the many miracles. Amen. Everybody wants to see a miracle, don't they? Everybody likes a miracle worker. Amen. That's why you've all stuck with me so long. I've worked so many miracles. But anyway, I want to talk to you about miracles. What does a miracle prove about the person that has the ability to work that miracle? Now, we think of miracles in a different light now that we know more about them than they did in the first century. But I just want to show you, I've got the seven things wrote down that miracles will teach us. Number one, it showed the compassionate side of Jesus. When he ran into somebody that was blind, his heart went out to him. He healed the blind. 
Amen. When he saw someone that was born crippled, his heart went out. He loved them. He had mercy. And he had a desire to help someone that was suffering. And sometimes when he came across the funeral, we read about that in the scripture, he stopped the funeral, saw the mother grieving over the child that had passed, stopped the funeral, sent the funeral director on his way, raised the child back to life, and sent him home with his mother. He was a funeral wrecker. He just had a way of changing everything when a miracle was put in place there. So he was very compassionate about people that had dire needs. That's why we pray to him. That's why we pray and ask for miracles in a lot of times. Amen. Number two, he wasn't afraid of those that had disease. Amen. I know, we've just came through a pandemic and half the country was petrified about even going outside because they were afraid they'd go and get sick. Well, Jesus wasn't afraid of that. Jesus walked right up to the lepers and touched them and healed them. He was not afraid of the disease that others were suffering from. He wanted to see them delivered from it and healed from that disease. Number three, he proved that money is not always the answer to the problems because he healed them and didn't charge it on their credit card. He didn't ask for health insurance papers or he didn't put in a form for Medicare to cover his expenses for healing them. Money was not an object. He's not a respecter of persons. If he met you and you needed a touch in his day and time, seems like nobody left the presence of Jesus without the healing touch that he had for him if they had a disease or needed a miracle. Amen? All right? So um, I would think that's especially uh, true of the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. We'll read about that in verse 7, that there was 5,000 there. But and then money even became an issue before this miracle took place. We'll get to that here in a little bit. So money's not a problem for Jesus. Number four, it proved he was who he said he was. The Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the one that God had sent to uh, fulfill the laws and prophets and be what God wanted him to be in opening the door of salvation for whosoever will to be saved and come into a right relationship with the Heavenly Father. Number five, many times the miracle became a truth teaching lesson. Miracles were used to set up a truth teaching lesson or synagogue or synagogue or who, any way to set that stage to teach the truth about it. After the miracle, the truth about him and his father's relationship was always what he wanted everybody to take from that lesson. When he healed the lepers, what did he tell them to do? All right, let's go have a party and you celebrate me healing you. No, he didn't say that. He said, go show yourself to the priests. That was the law. And then when you show yourself to the priest, he has to declare you legally cleansed, 
then you can come back into society. Amen? A lot of people look for somebody to blame when they find somebody that needs a miracle. That's what we find in John the ninth chapter. There was one that was born blind. And the disciples even got caught up in it. They said, who, was, who did sin? This boy or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, you guys got it all wrong. And of course he went on to heal his blindness and go on uh, and be uh, what he needed to be in the ninth chapter for the people around him. Number six, miracles draw a crowd. Hmm, if you're going to teach the truth, best thing to do is draw a crowd first, right? So he used his miracles to draw a crowd so that he could teach the truths that he needed to teach. Number seven, miracles displayed the spiritual power and authority that Jesus had with his father. For example, when he cast out devils. That's a miracle. Amen? It displayed his power over the devil and all the imps of this world that want to put people in bondage. And Jesus came to free them from that bondage in doing the miracle that he had the power and authority to do. Whatever the situation called for in doing the will of God, Jesus was not only willing to do it, but after he performed it, he didn't want the glory. He wanted the glory to go to his heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. He was not a glory hog. Amen. He was self-sacrificing of his time and of his personal agenda. Amen. Now, I think of that even when... Uh, he touched the woman that was in a crowd. You know that story? She'd been sick 38 years. Had a bleeding problem. No doctor could take care of her. She'd been to all of them. They'd done everything she could. Spent all of her living, it said. She was broke from paying all the doctors. And she was in a crowd. Jesus was. Man, everybody was pressing him all around. They was probably bumping him from side to side. And the woman thought in her heart, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'd be healed. And she crowded in and touched the hem of his garment and she felt the healing power go through her. And Jesus stopped the crowd and said, hey, who touched me? Are you kidding me? The disciple said, you're in a crowd like it. You were worried about who touched you? Oh, no, no, I, this was a special touch. I felt virtue go out of me in the healing power of someone. And then finally the ladies jumped up and said, oh, I did. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have bothered you. No, 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 I'm glad you did. I'm glad we could work a miracle on your behalf. Amen? Give glory to God. Amen? So we find that whenever he worked a miracle, it had a purpose behind it. Verse 3, we find Jesus in a quiet place, and he just wants to sit down and rest. Now, he had just come in on the boat that day, on the Sea of Tiberias, on Galilee, came to what you'd call the west coast of it, and he just went up into a mountain there, the scripture says, and he sat down to rest and take a little time to uh, just relax and carry on there, if you would. And verse number four mentions that uh, uh, it happened to be close to the Passover season. So a lot of the people, especially the Jews at that point in time of the year, would have been a little bit more mindful of the things that they needed to get taken care of at the Passover. So he sits down there with his disciples, and verse 5 says, He looked up 
and saw a bunch of people coming unto him. Okay? Now, I can't imagine all the thoughts that were going through Jesus' mind and spirit, knowing not only what the will of God was for him to do at this time, but also knowing the hearts of the disciples and the desires of the crowd. What a great teaching opportunity. It's just unbelievable what it is, and they're all sitting there on pins and needles waiting either for the next miracle to be performed by Jesus or to hear the next truths that come out of his mouth so that they would know more about his heavenly father. Well, as the disciples are sitting there, the crowd is gathering around. Philip speaks up. At that point, he turns to Philip. He says, why? Well, why did he turn to Philip? Maybe he was the closest in the circle of the disciples. I don't know. Maybe Philip was just one that had a puzzled look on his face about the crowd gathering or whatever the circumstance was. I don't know what it was. Maybe Jesus could actually read Philip's attitude and say, oh, here comes the crowd again. We just left them on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We came over here to get some rest. And look what they do. They just come right up here and get in our face again. Wish they would just leave us alone. Could have been the attitude Philip took. I don't know. But for some reason, Jesus turned to Philip. And he asked him, Philip, what are we going to do with this crowd? Amen? What are we going to do? And, he, and Philip says, well, I don't know. He says, well, why don't you give them something to eat? Go ahead and feed the crowd, Philip. Why don't you do that? Hmm. Whatever the situation was, why he chose to speak to Philip, Jesus says to him, how about we just go buy enough food to feed everybody? Wouldn't that be nice? Huh? Anybody against us? Just going down to McDonald's and filling up a truckload and bring it back and fill them all. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? Of course, Philip has an answer for that. Amen? I was last night, um, Ohio State played football. So you know where I was at, right? I'm a big Ohio State fan. When they play, I'm there. Amen? I watched that Ohio State game and... Uh, I heard the announcer say there was over 103,000 in the crowd. And they're there for three and a half hours. I just wonder if anybody went to the microphone to the public address system and said, the food is free tonight, I'm paying for everybody. 103,000, that's 103,200 hot dogs. That's a lot of food. That would cost an awful lot. But when you think of that, and that's what just crossed my mind because I knew what the message was for today, and I thought, man, how much would it cost to feed 103,000? Well, that'd be probably about the same as what it cost for Jesus to feed 5,000. That's a crowd now. Oh, well, we'll get back to the lesson now. In verse number six, 
it says that Jesus was on top of the situation. He knows what was going down. He knew uh, what he was going to do about it. So in verse number seven, Philip gets up enough courage at that time to answer with a doubtful response on the cost of the food of everyone that was in that crowd if they just got a mouthful, just a snack. Don't fill their stomach, just give them a little something to hold them over, amen? Sometimes I'm hungry for a meal and sometimes I'm hungry for a cookie. But I can tell you, the price of a meal is a whole lot more than the price of a cookie. But he says the price of the cookie for all this people would be 200 penny worth. Now I know you don't think that's not $2. We think a 200 pennies is be $2. And, and of course that's not what it is. Penny worth in their day and time was different. A penny worth was a day's wage. I read in one book that I was studying on this that uh, it would be 200 penny worth would be relative about the average person's salary for over eight months. That's quite a bit. Hmm. That's even a lot for me on Social Security. Right? That's a lot of money. Eight months worth. But he says to, to them, he said, I'm not worried about the price. When it comes to miracles, money's not the object. So between verse 7 and verse 8, there seems to be like a pause of silence around Jesus and the disciples so that all the disciples could come up with a situation and a solution for this massive feeding apparatus. How are we going to feed all these people? Then in verse 8 and 9, Andrew speaks up and says, Hey, guess what? Got one little boy over here that's got a lunch. He's got five barley loaves and two fishes. Hey, that should do it, shouldn't it? 5,000 people out of work, right? Oops, sorry. Oh, well. He ate his lunch. All right. So here he, he sits down there, and he talks about this little boy's lunch, and, in, and uh, Jesus says, bring it to me, even though that ain't, that's not much. Amen. It's that long black train, brother. <laughs> Amen. So he takes the two, the, the fishes and the loaves, and he sits down and he starts talking to them about it. Amen. With that statement that Jesus made, what are they among so many? And Jesus has an answer for them. In verse 10, he tells them all to sit down. Everybody go sit down. Oh, you guys are doing good. And men, that way they'll be easier for the disciples to feed them all. They'll be able to walk up and down the aisles and give them all they need. In verse 11, Jesus takes the little boy's lunch and he prays over it. He said grace before they ate. Isn't that nice? He said grace. He talks to them and he says to them, uh, I want you to take what here is and gives it to the 12 disciples. So now can you imagine the little biscuits and the little minnows and start passing it out to 12 people? How much would each one of them get? And yet there was so much that they just started down the line in this section and that section and all 12 sections feeding all the people and they all got more than they wanted 
And at the end, in verse 13, the disciples went around to pick up the leftovers. And they got 12 baskets full. Huh. Looks like God overdid himself. Amen. When he works a miracle, sometimes he works it so good, everybody gets too much. Amen? I don't know about you. Sometimes tomorrow's leftovers are better than when they were fixed the first day. Amen? Amen. Bonnie makes chili, and the first day I eat it, man, it's pretty good. The second day, it's really good. And the third day, I'm kind of getting used to it. <laughs> Amen. Leftovers ain't all that bad. Amen. So here, uh, when they get to this, uh, I can just uh, see Jesus uh, uh, jumped up on the hickory stump and said, boys, let me tell you what. Here's what we're going to do. No, Jesus never said a word about this miracle. He never said to do anything. He just went, if you would, through the motions. He broke it off and gave it to him. Broke it off and gave it to him. And they took, broke it off and gave it to them. Broke it off and gave it to them. No, he didn't say nothing. He said, please, everybody, don't take too much. Please, everybody, tip your waiter. He didn't say a word. He just let the miracle happened. No doubt, everything was taken care of at that time. In verse 14, it comes down, and it says, those, and those men, who are they? Well, it was the disciples, and it was the 5,000, or both, in the crowd. It's the crowd of 5,000, it says in verse 10. When they saw the miracle that Jesus did, said, Jesus is that prophet. He is the one we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ that God promised that he'd send into the world. Verse 15, Jesus believes that they're about to take him by force. Now, Jesus is just one person. There's 5,012 around him. They may be overpower me and take me by force and make me their king. Well, that wasn't his calling. That's not what God sent him to do. That's not what he was supposed to be. So he made an exit, stage left, into a mountain alone, and left there with all those folks satisfied in the lunch they just enjoyed. Now, verses 16 down through 24 tells about the disciples getting in the boat at Tiberias and going to Capernaum. That's from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the north side. And, of course, evidently, there had to be some kind of prearrangements with the disciples that after this meeting on the mountain there, they were going to go back to Capernaum for the next day. Now, I don't know if that had something to do with the Passover being nigh that we talked about earlier in the the, this particular chapter, but it came down that the boat ride that the disciples were on and the, the crowd that was there, they all, after they got their stomachs full, what do you do when you get your stomach full? Go to sleep. I don't know what they did, but they went about their way, and when Jesus uh, came down off the mountain, he knew the disciples were in trouble out on the sea. Now, we're not going to get into all that, but what did he do? He walked on the water out to the boat, Calm to see, and the next thing the disciples realize, they're already ashore. How about that stuff? Well, that's another miracle in itself. Amen? 
So uh, here in verse number 27, or well, let's just go to verse 26. He says, um, Verily, verily, you seek me not because of the miracle, the spiritual lesson, but you have eaten a big meal and your stomachs are full physically. They're seeking him for physical benefit, not the spiritual benefit. Amen? In verse 27, Jesus' lesson is not to the crowd. Don't work to eat. Eat to work. Eat to work for God. Eat spiritual food that God gives you from his word and from his spirit to guide you in what God wants you to do. The question was, in verse 28, how do we do that? Verse 29, Jesus says, believe on him whom God hath sent. God, he's trying to get them to understand his position through all this, the Messiah, the Christ. Don't look at Jesus as a man. Look at him as God, part of the Trinity. If you do that, we can get this all worked out and everything will be what God wants it to be. So in verse 30, they ask, <coughs> excuse me, they ask for a sign so they would know who is the one that God sent to them. Are you kidding me? He just fed them all. Amen? With a happy meal. With a snack. He fed 5,012 of them. And I'm sure he had his share. Amen. He didn't want to get left out of the miracle either. And now they're asking, who is this one that God's sending? Well, it's the one that's working the miracle. Amen. They just ate it at Jesus' smorgasbord. And they're still asking for a sign. My goodness. Well, you get to get one of them, they tie around your neck, I guess. Here's your sign. Amen. And they were given eight months of salary worth of food free. And they're still looking for a sign. They saw the physical Jesus, but they lost sight of the spiritual Jesus. Amen. And they reverted back to when God sent manna into the wilderness, and Jesus talked to them about that. Uh, in the wilderness to the children of Israel being led by Moses there in verse 31. And Jesus reminded them that everybody that ate all that food, all that manna, you know all the manna that God fed those people? Not one of them made it to the promised land. <gasps> that whole generation, the Bible says, passed away in the wilderness because of unbelief. Amen? So don't look for God to feed you in a miraculous way if you don't get your spirit in tune with what he wants you to have. Amen? Jesus reminded them, everyone in the wilderness, every one of them died with a full stomach. Amen? Verse 33, God has spiritual bread that gives life is what Jesus says. Amen? And they said, oh, give us this living bread. We want that. 
Sounds a lot like what John wrote about in John chapter 4 to woman at the well. She came to get water from the well and Jesus was there. And Jesus says, well, can you give me a drink? And she said, well, no, I, I'm not giving you a drink. You're, you're a Jew. I don't have no dealings with you. He said, well, if you'd ask me a drink, I'd give you a drink and you'd never get thirsty again. Oh, now she wants that water. She wants it where she'll never drink. Well, these people want the living bread so they'll never have to eat again. Boy, wouldn't that be convenient? Amen? I don't know about you. I don't go too long without eating. And you can tell that by looking at me. Amen? And I even get plenty to drink from time to time. I don't want to dehydrate. But that's in the physical world. In the spiritual world, I have to be up to date with what Jesus wants me to be and being the bread that I need to eat and the living water that he told the Samaritan woman about uh, in uh, John the fourth chapter. Now in Jesus, in verse 35 says, that he says he gives it to them because he says, I am the bread of life. Wow. I can tell you something that I think they all looked at him and scratched their head, rubbed their foreheads, amen, shook the cobwebs out of their brain and tried to figure out, what did he just say? Well, are we supposed to eat his body? Is that what he just said? This man's nuts. We're not cannibals. But he's not talking about physical bread. He's talking about spiritual bread. He says, he that cometh to me shall never hunger again. And that means you'll never be spiritually hungry again. And your soul will be satisfied in the things that Jesus has for you. Verse number 36, this is crucial. The first word of verse number 36 says, but, I swear, every time I see the word but, or somebody says but, when Jesus tells them what they should do, and they say but, they're looking for an excuse. They're looking for a way out. But, I said unto you, you see me physically, but you don't buy into the spiritual work that's right in front of your eyes. Amen? We need to get over all the exceptions and all the excuses and learn at the feet of Jesus. It's not just about miracles. I say just about miracles. Miracles are involved. Miracles are a part of God's plan. And we have to realize it's all about God and it's all about souls in everything we do for Jesus Christ. So when we get our hearts and minds straightened out, understand what's going on around us, when the miracles happen, it's just God's way of working things out. We need to indeed take in the bread of life. That's Jesus. If we'll do that spiritually, he promised us we'll never be hungry again. We need to follow his teachings to do God's will and not just be astonished by the miracles. I don't, I don't know about you, but when now see America's Got Talent, I enjoy watching that because, not for the singers, I'm better than all of them, aren't we, Ryan? We got that covered. Anyway, 
I mean, I like to watch the magicians. I like to watch the high aerial act climbing, jumping through hoops and throwing knives at each other. You know, real talent. Amen. That other stuff. I really enjoy the magicians. They fascinate me. They can do uh, and give a card to somebody over here, and by the time he's done two minutes later, somebody's got that card in their pocket on the other side of the building. Now, I don't know how it happens, but, uh, and I don't even really care about it, but I am astonished by that. But I'm not going to uh, be mesmerized by the magic they can do because they probably can do it over and over and over again and make it uh, really come out the way they want it to. But I'm just amazed in any miracle that happens, and most people just take it for granted. Miracles happen around us all the time, and we don't, most of the time, acknowledge them. We need to take time and see what God is doing in lives of people around us, for us, to us, all that, so that we can be in tune with what God wants us to be. We need to believe in the bread of life. And this won't make you hungry for the temporary physical things of the world that the devil wants you to chase after and follow. You need to be hungry for the things that will fill your soul. Amen? The devil has a counterfeit of some sort to cover every miracle that God can do in your life. He wants you to be sidetracked by that. And he doesn't want you to give God the... Uh, honor and glory for that miracle. If someone buys you lunch, take time to say thank you. Be grateful. Amen. If God does a miracle in your life, take time to say thank you. Be grateful. Be understanding of what's going on. Don't expect them to take over and, and take you into raise. Amen. Just because they buy your lunch doesn't mean they want to be your big daddy. Come on now. We're still on our own two feet walking where we need to walk with God, but God only wants us, God wants to raise you up in the last days is what he said in verse 39 and 40. He's going to raise us up in the last days. We know what that is, and that's, of course, the last days is another whole subject. But it requires that you and I sell out spiritually to Jesus Christ and enjoy the bread of life, that will fill our spirits forever. Amen? When you get hungry, get something to eat. When you get thirsty, get something to drink. But when you're spiritually hungry, turn to Jesus. He'll have a lesson that'll help you, whatever comes your way, to be what you need to be for him. And remember... Jesus never said it'd be easy, just worth it. Let us